So this prayer this morning is a Thanksgiving prayer that was written um, in 1555. So let us pray. I thank thee, O Lord, for my being, my life, and my gift of reason, for my nurture, my preservation, my guidance, for my education, my civil rights, my religious privileges, for thy gifts of grace, of nature, of this world, for my redemption, my regeneration, my instruction in the Christian faith, for my calling, my recalling, my manifold renewed recalling, for thy forbearance and long-suffering, thy prolonged forbearance many a time, many a year, for all the benefits I have received and all the undertakings wherein I have prospered, for any good I may have done, for the use of the blessings of this life, for thy promise and my hope of the enjoyment of good things to come, for all of these, and also for all other mercies, known and unknown, remembered by me or now forgotten, kindnesses received by me willingly or even against my will. I praise thee, I bless thee, and I thank thee all the days of my life. Amen. Welcome. Uh, centering prayer begins this uh, Wednesday, and it'll be throughout Advent. Any of you who are able to come, we'd love to have you from 4 to 5. Uh, our um, brochure on all the classes from January through June will be out in December. Uh, so look for that. We have some great speakers coming up. And I uh, wanted to remind you all that uh, we're going to do a congregation-wide book read, and the uh, registration form is now online on the Adult Ed tab. So sign up. We can order you a book if you prefer to have a book ordered for you to be picked up here. Or uh, you can download it on um, Kindles. And I uh, hope you'll participate. We have a group of facilitators who are going to lead uh, discussion, one-time discussion in people's homes and uh, here at the church. So hope you'll be a part of that. And with that, without further ado, welcome. Thank you. Amy, that was a beautiful prayer. Very reformed. Very reformed. 1555, that's about uh, 30 years after Martin Luther's iconic act, which sets in motion the Reformation. So that's uh, not far from that moment. I'm speaking in this series uh, on basic, uh, just a selection of basic themes in Reformed theology. Just a selection because uh, there are many others that could be taken up. I'm just doing a, shall we say, a beginning statement about some of the most fundamental, the most absolutely basic. I'm speaking uh, on the following foundation so that you'll understand I'm not just uh, dreaming this up. Uh, it comes from uh, something which is reflective of what I said in the last, at the end of my last presentation. We base our theology, or hope to base our theology, on Scripture. Scripture is the foundation. It's uniquely authoritative in the Protestant world, I think, uh, but in a in a distinctive way in the Reformed tradition. But I also said and this is a very important point last time, that that does not mean that we're just free to choose what we think personally for uh, on the basis of our own reading of Scripture. That is not our tradition. Our tradition uh, assumes that the activity of interpreting Scripture is a collective activity which we do in the life of the church. I would go so far as to say it's a kind of heresy to believe that we just are free to make up any old interpretation we want to. It's a collective activity <clears throat> in which we engage, and we engage in a certain way. I said last time that we emphasize very strongly having educated clergy, especially educated clergy preaching and teaching, as you might say, the center, the, the centering force of our 
work together. On the other hand, we also believe equally uh, strongly that educated lay people have a role to play in the development of church doctrine. Let me say that again. Educated lay people, especially elders, the people we call elders, biblically literate, theologically educated elders have a role to play in the shaping of church doctrine. Catholics are, shall we say, disturbed by that idea. Um, but it's very interesting to have a conversation, as I've had, with some very ecumenical Jesuits, for example. They ask me questions like the following. I understand, Douglas, that in your church, lay people participate in decisions about church doctrine. Yes, I say, that's, that's, that's at the heart of it. Of course, that's not their position. And then they say, and this is a beginning of a long conversation, how's that working out? <laughs> uh, and, of course, the thing that kind of shocks them when they start thinking about it, and that's why it's a basis of a lot of conversation, is, is it really true that elders know something about church doctrine that they can really talk sensibly about? The, I said, that is the witness of our tradition. That's what's happened. That's why uh, we have the polity that we do have. But think about that. Educated lay people are a very important distinctive feature of our tradition. Now, related to that, we then have creeds and confessions. We are a creedal, creedal church or cluster of churches. And those creeds and confessions define for us orthodoxy. Now, the creeds and confessions themselves do recognize a legitimacy of dissent. They recognize that the whole church can get it wrong. But still, the idea is that we work together collectively and we articulate in creeds and confessional statements what we believe to be the best, thing, the best possible guess we've got as to the truth of the matter. And that becomes a standard and a basis on which the church's life is supposed to be conducted. And one of the most important consequences of that is that nobody can preach, or should be preaching, in one of our churches unless they've passed and can pass certain theological examinations which are related to creeds and confessions. I stand here as somebody who believes in that 100%, but I hope you understand that's important. That's very important, and it's part of the distinctive ethos of these churches. It is simply inconceivable for us that somebody simply starts a church, stands up there, and starts preaching whatever he chooses, whatever she chooses. I hope you see there's a, there's a, there's a theology and a polity which is inseparably connected there, and part of the ethos of this kind of church, Westminster Presbyterian, is related to all of that. Now, believe it or not, that's not my talk, topic this morning. But I thought that was a very important... And the other thing I would say is, not only is what I'm saying this morning based upon creeds and confessions, I'm not going to cite them, I'm not going to be pedantic about it, but I, I assure you that there is plenty of creedal foundation for what I'm saying this morning. But there are also, of course, great theologians. And we emphasize their names and places because we think they have been influential, so influential in shaping the mind of the church. I'll be relying primarily this morning on two, John Calvin, you've heard of him before, John Calvin, and the 20th century theologian Karl Barth. Uh, I think two of the maybe four or five who are the most important in shaping of the Reformed tradition. Barth, in case you haven't heard, was a Swiss, German-speaking Swiss theologian of the middle years of the 20th century. Died in the 1960s, played a crucial role in the uh, European struggle against Nazism. Principal author of the so-called Barman Declaration, which in our Book of Confessions is a theological response to Nazism. I commend that to you if you're interested in that topic. And it's related, again, to the topic I'm going to be talking about today. Now, what I'm going to be talking about today is what we believe about God in 45 minutes. Um, let me begin with this observation. We live in an age where people are not, to put it gently, theologically very sophisticated. Um, there have been times in the history of our, our own culture, but 
more specifically, the history of the church, where people have been quite theologically sophisticated and, and really could, could, could spot a sermon which was heretical. I'm not sure we can do that anymore. Uh, but we're living in a time when there's a kind of, and I think it's, I'm not going to get into the sort of causes of this, but where, where people, all people's ideas about God, the most fundamental theological topic, are kind of loose and casual. And you know, if you ask them, what precisely do you believe? Well, I believe what the Bible says. Well, what does the Bible say? And you know, you said, etc. So, this is a topic about which I think most people, even church-going people, would have a hard time getting started in a lengthy discussion. I'm guessing. But in the Reformed tradition, it is a really important topic. Indeed, John Calvin said the following: "The beginning of wisdom is knowledge of God." Now, he quickly said, the beginning of knowledge, but the almost equally important source of wisdom is knowledge of the human condition in the light of God. But still, start with God. His firm conviction was, it was just, it is of great importance that people get clear what they know about God, and even more important, what they believe, what they are prepared to trust in, trust in about God. Now, it is a pretty well-established empirical fact, and this may surprise you. This comes from the sort of sociological study of religion, that what people believe about God doesn't always but can profoundly affect their, not just their behavior, but their personalities. There's a wonderful book, for example, on child-raising called The Protestant Temperament, in which the author talks about, in a very, very interesting way, how child-raising practices have been influenced by people's notion of God. Is God a stern judge or a loving parent? I hope you see already that you're on your way to certain different child practices, child-raising practices. But it's not just child-raising. It's a whole series of other things which are influenced by the way we think. Now, maybe in a group like this, that's not a newsflash, but I assure you it's, it's terribly important. That's related to the fact that the, the sort of practical ethos of different religions and different Christian communions vary. You know, the Methodists are kind of like that, and the Lutherans are kind of like that, and the Buddhists are kind of like that. And it's related to convictions. I say to my students all the time, deep convictions matter. They ultimately determine the kind of person you're going to be. So when we talk about this matter, this topic this morning, we're talking about something which if you think about it seriously and brood on it, it's one of the most consequential, consequential things in life, even though I think probably if you had just a man on the street question, does your belief in God really matter? Eh, not so much. But it does matter. It matters deeply. And the way we raise our children on these topics, boy, does it matter. Boy, does it matter. So I'm talking this morning about that topic, what the Reformed tradition, or at least parts of the Reformed tradition, have had to say about it. I'm going to be emphasizing, on the whole, beliefs that are shared in common, but I will also be touching upon ones where there is some tension and contradiction among Reformed thinkers, and there's been an evolution on this topic, and I'll also try to dwell on that. In Calvin's Institutes, at the very beginning, there is a, a wonderful discussion of the role that religion plays in human life. <clears throat> it's surprisingly fresh and contemporary when you read it. And here, and just a few few lines, a few few thoughts from it. What I'm about to say to start it off is something that's controversial, but it certainly is a it, the defensible proposition, if not entirely without possibility for debate, and the proposition is this. Human beings just naturally are religious. <clears throat> That's the claim. They're naturally drawn towards <clears throat> belief in the higher power. I, I know from my experience at the university today. There's a lot of skepticism about that. But, and there was, even in Calvin's day, the 16th century, but 
his argument for it is, is very fresh in the following way. It, ta it, ta it talks about certain qualities in, in human life, which um, even now people, social scientists and historians and others will talk about a lot. We're not just animals. We're creatures. Even those of us who are highly practical are drawn towards meaning in life. Remember all that meaning stuff that goes on in our culture today, finding a meaning in life? Well, that's a kind of powerful affirmation of this point. We're not just animals. We are the kind of creatures who, what, ascribe meaning to things and sometimes ascribe elaborate meaning to things. And we, are, we create great symbol systems. Even those of us, I would say, who are agnostic and atheists, we, we create great symbol systems around these meanings, right? And these meaning systems are related to something else. This is all Calvin here I'm talking about. I'm paraphrasing, but this is the idea. It's rather natural for human beings to ascribe meaning to certain things in such a way as for them to become objects of devotion. Excuse me, of devotion. By the way, Calvin comes pretty close to saying in an age when nationalism is just beginning to emerge, just beginning to emerge, 16th century, the formation of nation states, there's a passage in which he says, one of the ways in which this is most commonly manifested is, he doesn't quite say nation, but he kind of implies it, that there's a sort of collective identity that people are a part of, and they ascribe some huge meaning to that, purpose to that, which they're willing even to make a sacrifice for, even the sacrifice of life itself. No, devotion, devotion, being devoted to. So we're meaning-creating creatures who rather naturally are drawn in the direction not just of ascribing meaning, but ascribing such significance to that thing which is an object of our meaning that we do, we're devoted to it. And somehow our lives become, in our, in our sense, more fulfilled when we've got that thing that we can devote ourselves to, passionately sometimes. I hope you're sensing how that sort of sets the stage. And then he says the following. He says, our minds, our minds are little factories of, of idolatry. I love that imagery. Our minds are just factories of idolatry. We're constantly sort of positing meaning here, meaning there, meaning, and as I say, developing elaborate symbol systems and worshiping these things and you know, all of that kind of stuff. That's the kind of creatures we are. And he has got some almost anthropological observations. He says, through history, think of all the ways in which human beings have done that. Inventing various religions, inventing various causes, marching off to war, doing this, doing that. It's kind of a reflection of who we are as creatures. And he says that is related to how God created us. God created us as beings who've got this complicated he doesn't say drive, but it's almost drive to what? Serve some higher purpose than just making a living. You know, just getting through the day. Well, I hope you see how that kind of sets the stage for thinking about God. Because <laughs> you've got this meaning drive, this meaning aspiration. Now, why would he, why would he call the... the, the uh, the, the uh, resulting activity, idolatry. Of course, you, we all know what idolatry is. Idolatry is the worship of a false god, idol, of our creation. We make it, you know? I mean, literally from biblical sort of stories about it. You know, we create, remember, think of the Israelites, create an idol. We make it out of our own hands. And then we bow down and worship. But when you think about it, in one sense, it's an absolutely crazy idea. And we look back and say, what a primitive thing. And yet we do it all the time, don't we? Create something and then worship it. Now, our minds are, this is Calvin still. I'm still with Calvin. Our minds are factories of idolatry in the sense that we're dreaming up stuff all the time. <coughs> Which implies what? Implies that much of the activity that goes on in this striving for meaning, is misguided. It doesn't quite hit the mark. 
Because ultimately, if we're thinking about God, we're thinking about what? The true God. Assuming there is a true God. So we're groping. Let's put it that way. We're groping towards some kind of truth about this thing. What, which, uh, what would be the, tr- the, the true object of our striving? But we're groping. We're trying, he says, again, sort of wonderful imagery to me. We're trying to understand, when we try to make sense of God, we're trying to understand something which is beyond our comprehension. Beyond our comprehension. And he uses the wonderful, typical imagery to talk about this. Infinite, infinite powers. You know, the, the true God, presumably, is, I'm going to get to this in a moment, sort of thoroughly transcendent. Beyond, beyond, we're, 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 like, we're like ants trying to, trying to understand something just so huge it's beyond us. The object of theological reflection, he says, is something which is, in, in the strict sense, humanly incomprehensible. Let me say that again. The object of theological speculation, theological reflection, is something which is humanly incomprehensible. That's why it's a little bit of a joke to say, I'm going to tell you what God is like. You know, five points. Okay. Yeah. I'm get. Uh, believe you me. Believe me. I'm getting to that. But but you're gonna have to you're gonna have to be with me to the end. I, I will get there. I knew that question was gonna come up. So now here's what I've been winding up. Here comes the punch. Calvin says, and that's why Scripture is so important. Because Scripture is the word we use for it all the time. It is a revelation. Against this background of human beings kind of fumbling their way. It's a little bit like one of us in the dark. You know, we're trying to, we're trying to figure something out in the dark. Sort of fumbling around. And by the way, Calvin says, wonderful characterization, he says, there are a lot of signs and signals in the natural world because after all, the natural world was created by God and it's full of signals about what God is really like and what God's purposes are. But they're signals that we can easily miss. You know, those of you, those of us who have a hard time with some subject, let's say math, you know, the, the, the math prof says, well, it's all there. It's in the, the signals are all there, but if you're not good at math, you kind of miss the signals. Or the signals don't quite, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yes. Well, now, here, here's, here's Calvin's claim. He says, Scripture is, and this is, again, is sort of a wonderful image, God condescending to try to make clear to us something which otherwise would be difficult to even comprehend. Revelation. Or another image he uses, a very reformed image, is... Scripture is light coming into what is a very, basically, dark and confused situation. Hard to understand. By the way, sir, implicit in all this is kind of a critique of other religions. Clearly, that's, you know, they're fumbling and finally you get the the light dawning. I I know where that, uh, that's where we're coming from here. So, Scripture, he understands as a kind of illumination, a telling us, and the implication of that, by the way, is the following. Scripture provides us with illumination that opens our eyes in ways that enable us to discover things we could not possibly have comprehended otherwise. Let me say that strongly which we could not possibly have grasped on our own. That's a difference from the Catholic position, which is that revelation is a kind of complement to reason, and that if you were really smart, you'd probably get 80-90% of it by reasoning it out. The broad Protestant difference on this is that even if you're really smart, there is a kind of corrupted quality to our reasoning which prevents us from seeing adequately what the truth of the matter is. That's why we need revelation. That's part of this constant theme I'm going to be giving, emphasizing all the way through Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. That's why Scripture is privileged so heavily. So, says Calvin, if we're really going to get at the truth of the matter, we have to rely upon Scripture, especially when it comes to thinking about God. We've got to think about Scripture. 
think through the lens of Scripture. Now, what does Scripture tell us about God? Well, let me concede to begin with why that's not an easy question to answer. I think there are people who will say, well, it's kind of obvious what Scripture tells us about God. I mean, yeah, come on. But I know at Westminster there are enough people who've read seriously the Bible to know and thought about it that it's a complicated business. So think about what it is. It would be a lot simpler and a lot more straightforward if Scripture read like a simple doctrinal statement. This is what God is. Six points, you know, or like a catechism, you know. What is God? The answer, what is, what, you know, sort of go through the recitation of the, of the question, but it's not like that. Instead, you all know, I didn't perhaps dwell on this enough last time, but the, it's a collection of very different kinds of texts, stories. A lot of it is story. And by the way, some of the most important things, let me stress this, some of the most important things that Scripture tells us about God come in the form of story. At least, in the Reformed tradition, it's been that way. Think, for example, of the power of the story of the prodigal son, which we commonly interpret, I think correctly, as, a, as, a, as, a, as kind of a, a metaphor for what God is like. But it's a story, right? Or another one that came up in a conversation I had after the talk last time with one of the people here, what, what sense do we make of the Abraham and Isaac story? I mean, put those two together and you've got at least hours of discussion. What is Abraham and Isaac? You know, the testing of Abraham's faith, the terrible testing of Abraham's faith. What does that tell us about God? But no, it's a story again. And we've got story. You've got poetry. You've got long historical narratives, kings and all this kind of stuff going on. You've got... At certain points, you do have theological statements. One of the most important, many of those come in, in the form of letters from Paul, but the book of Romans, above all, the pivotal text for understanding the Reformation, that one is a, the closest thing to a kind of theological exposition. But note, all these different things going on there. So how do we make sense of that? Well, to make a long story short, there are certain key themes that are held up out of that mix, out of that vast array of texts when you think about it. There are certain key themes that get sort of privileged and elevated. It's like you know, if Jonathan Edwards or Karl Barth or for that matter some of the distinguished pastors in the history of this tradition were to tell you what, what in the Bible is really worth emphasizing, focusing on, they, they would say these things. I'm going to give you four or five, which I think are very much at the core of the kind of, shall we say, practical theology that probably many of the people in this room have got. Point number one. Polemical point at the time of the Reformation. Whew, really polemical. God is transcendent. If you don't know the background, the historical background, you may say, well, of course. Oh, of course, duh, as my students say, duh. But let me, let me just sort of emphasize that a little more strongly. Utterly transcendent. Utterly transcendent. Now, why would, that, why would that be a subject of polemics? Well, because at the time of the Reformation, there was a whole church that, had embodied, that presented itself, and by the way, still presents itself as God's representative on this earth, right? That is part of the definition of the Pope. God's representative right here. Speaking on behalf of, da-da-da-da-da. Now, I hope you see the importance of this. At the heart of the Reformation, these are all very, very pious people. These are all as dedicated Christians as you are ever going to find anywhere. I mean, some, indeed, from the point of view of their critics, too dedicated. 
too dedicated and scary dedicated from the point of view of, of, their, uh, of their opponents who said, we cannot identify anything on this earth directly and unambiguously as an extension of God, especially not anything human like the church. Now, note what that implies. We have got a doctrine of the church which says the church is a terribly important institution, but it is not God's, it is not an extension of God on this earth precisely because it is a human institution. It is full of fallibility and sin and da-da-da-da-da. And there was a very strong insistence on the importance of keeping, sometimes the phrase that's used is, keeping people aware of and sensitive to the radical otherness of God. The otherness of God. Let's not conflate even if we say God created us and sustains us and all that good stuff, you know, and God is present in creation and all those good things, let's not identify God with anything here and now. Including even nature, where you don't talk about sin in the same way, right? Radical otherness of God. That's related, by the way, to a very important practical motif at the time of the Reformation, which has still, in its kind of, in a very indirect way, affects our piety and our church practices called iconoclasm. There's a, there's a bitter history to this. Our spiritual forebears at the time of the Reformation would go into churches where there was all this stuff which was treated as kind of a direct sort of um, uh, sort of extension of things divine and smashed them. Smashed them. It was anti-art. I never will forget you know, on a tour of one place in Scotland where a cathedral literally had been destroyed. Just smashed it. Marching in there. Why? Because they were convinced that the way in which this, the, this, this cathedral functioned in the piety of the city was idolatrous. There was too direct identification of those statues, those this, that, and the other thing with God. God is up, up there. God is always over against to some extent. Well, I know. See, that, yes, yes, that's a Muslim point of view, he just says. Absolutely. Now, the Muslims would say, in part because we're Christians, we don't go far enough in that regard. Because, after all, we do worship, in part, a human being, you see where we're going with that, as an extension of God. But that radical otherness is part of the Protestant ethos, and in particular, it's part of the Reformed ethos. By the way, if you're interested in reading about that, uh, one, of the, one of the great uh, 20th century Christian thinkers uh, who wrote about that with, I think, real effectiveness is Richard Niebuhr. H. Richard Niebuhr. He's got a, a little book, short little book, called Radical Monotheism in Western Culture. And he says, by the way, that that idea of the radical otherness of God ultimately derives from the Hebrew prophets. And he's probably right about that. You know, he kept saying over and over again, do not identify directly Israel with God. Israel is capable of what? Betraying. God is God and we're here. So that's number one. Strong emphasis on transcendence. Second theme, which we, I think, need to be schooled a little bit in order to understand the significance of. You will find all the way through Reformed thought, even to the present moment, a strong emphasis on a political term in talking about God. And that word, that political term is sovereignty. Sovereignty. How many times have you heard from the pulpit? Sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. My guess is you heard it so many times you weren't even aware you were hearing it. But it's a really big theme in Reformed thought. The sovereignty of God. And by the way, the latest confessional statement, well, the Belhar Confession is now going into the Book of Confessions, but prior to the introduction of the Belhar Confession, there is this confessional statement, wonderful confessional statement in my opinion, short statement of faith I think it's called, written in the 1980s, which uses this wonderful phrase that I find so paradoxical, but it captures a lot of the Reformed 
view. They keep talking in that in that statement about God in his and it, uh, please excuse the sexist language, but that's just the way I think and talk. I assure you, I do not identify God with masculinity. That's just the way I talk. Uh, the phrase is sovereign love, sovereign love, sovereign love. It's a wonderful sort of joining of two. Now, here, here, let me get to the point about sovereignty. I'm sensitive to this because, of course, I teach politics. I teach history of ideas and politics, and that's a very important theme in the 16th and the 17th century in Western political thought. Sovereignty. What is sovereignty? Sovereignty is highest authority. That's, that's a sovereign nation, sovereign ruler. We all live in institutions where there is a chain of command, where there are lower authorities and higher authorities. The sovereign is the highest authority. So to say a nation is sovereign means what? It doesn't answer to any higher figure. That's, that's sovereignty. Now, I've alluded to something I want to come back and pick up on, and that is at the time of the Reformation, you have the beginnings of the process of creating modern nation-states. Very important part of the sort of fallout of the Reformation. Europe is broken down not only to different religious forces, Lutherans, Anglicans, and so forth, but also the emergence of nation states. And those two things are intertwined. Because typically, as the process plays out, those nations are identified with one version of Christianity or another. So you have Anglican, you have Lutheran. And they're identified with certain nations. That's a Lutheran nation. That's a Catholic, etc. You see what I'm getting at. Religion is intertwined, therefore, with nationalism as that unfolds. Now, back to sovereignty. What's emerging in this period is nation states. They're actually being created. It's the foundation of the world we know. Indeed, in a sense, it's still that process is still unfolding. 20th century is a long, complicated process of trying to impose, largely by Western sort of action, the nation-state form on all the world. Oftentimes, with I think part of the struggle of the Middle East today is because of that, you know, the difficulties of doing that successfully. But now, in the 16th century, you have the emergence of authority figures, kings, queens, who are gathering unto themselves the power necessary to govern a nation. They're creating a civil service. They're creating an army. They're creating courts. They're creating all that stuff, which draws people eventually in the direction of thinking of themselves as citizens of France or Spain or whatever. Now, what's that got to do with our topic? Well, in the 16th century, if you look, just read, just, just, sometimes the lines themselves, but certainly between the lines, you will discover the following. In that world, for the most part, what they were dealing with politically was the emergence of these monarchs, who typically were larger-than-life figures. Think Henry VIII. You know, that, that's, the, that's the political reality. And by the way, when, if, if I were lecturing on political thought, I'd be talking about their response to the phenomenon of the emergence of all these monarchies. Now, it's these monarchies, whether it be Henry VIII or Elizabeth, the great Elizabeth or whatever, it's these monarchies, I want to suggest to you, that really kind of, especially in the form of divine right of kings and absolutism, arrogate to themselves the power to do anything they please. That's part of the great political struggle of the 16th century and the 17th century. We don't want to have, we don't, we don't want to have our hands tied at all. We want to rule in a free way. And believe, ironically, that was a modernizing strategy. Give me all the power so that I can run this land in a free way on the basis of what I understand to be the truth of the matter. Now, you might think Douglas has just gone completely off topic here and, and we're suddenly in a political science class, but here comes the connection. I want to suggest to you that in the main, in the time of the founding of our tradition, people took those monarchs as the model for God. 
Let me say that again. Those monarchs as the model for God. So when they said divine sovereignty, what they were saying was the God we worship is in a somewhat indirect way. He's kind of like that monarch, that all-powerful monarch. Indeed, some of their statements about God were specifically in that vein. We worship a God who is governed by nothing other than his will. Calvin says that. A God who freely can do whatever he chooses. By the way, the Roman Catholic deity was a more constrained deity, constrained by natural law and all this. No, no, no. We worship a God who is free to do and has the power to do anything he can choose to do. I hope you see why some people might be terrified by that idea. Now, where did they get that idea? Well, because in, in, for the most part, that's a set of inferences they drew from the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, in their view, was a God who was, well, a, a God above gods. There were kings, and then there was something higher than that. Now, the God of theology that I've been discussing let's call this God a super sovereign would be scary except for the following considerations this God they also said we know from the witness of scripture is righteous righteous I know from long teaching in the church that when you say righteous and then you ask people to say, what does that mean? There's a, there's a, oftentimes a kind of blankness comes over the sky. What, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, I would put it this way, doing, committed to doing what is right. Right. He's a righteous man. He's committed to doing what is right. And presumably the God we're talking about here is committed to doing what is right in some way that's even beyond our imagining. And to some extent, they said, and through all this, even though committed to our committed to doing what is right, we can't claim to know fully what that means, except that we are convinced that God is a righteous God. But the other side of the coin is the following. God expects and demands of us righteousness. Is it me or is it very warm in here? Let's open up. Now, what does that imply? That's another strain in Reformed thought and practice. We are known, we have been known historically as a very moralistic people. A very moralistic people. We want people to behave rightly. Do the right thing. That is understood in our tradition to be something which flows from God's expectation for us. It flows certainly from the Decalogue, but beyond that it flows from other things as well. There are things that are given to us as divine commands, and the theme of those divine commands is, as much as possible, do the Lord's will on an ongoing basis. So God, him, and by the way, the other thing that's very important to note about this is, when you think about the various kinds of theologies and various kinds of religious practices there are, this particular one emphasizes very strongly in terms of our own relationship to God the importance of us conducting our lives morally there are passages in scripture which are eloquent about this comparing for example and goes back to Israel what is the thing that the Lord requires of you well, yes, burnt offerings to be sure, but not primarily burnt offerings. What does the Lord require of you? A certain heart, a certain behavior. As though that behavior is ultimately of just fundamental importance. Now, of course, that then implies something else. If God is righteous, God, we expect God himself to act rightly. And God expects of us to act rightly, and of course we don't. We don't. 
implicit in this idea of righteousness is a whole series of things. We don't, and therefore, now to complete the picture, God is not just aggrieved by unrighteousness. God hates unrighteousness. God hates unrighteousness. I think it's quite possible to say in, 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 in sort of the flow of Reformed theology that there is a sense in which God has a kind of hatred for the wrong thing, for doing the wrong thing, for being the wrong kind of thing. Reformed theology has never been apologetic about using phrases like the anger of God, the anger of God. It's related in, 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 in Reformed thought to the justice of God. If God is truly just, then what? God has naturally a tendency to react strongly in a negative way to those things which are wrong. Wrong, doing the wrong thing, being the wrong kind of person. That is not a small matter. Well, all this comes under the rubric that I've been talking about of moralism. Those Calvinists, they're so bloody moralistic. By the way, I read an article recently in the Economist magazine talking about the Huguenots in France today, or the, the, sort of the, the descendants of the Huguenots today. And it said, these people are still somewhat dour, even in France. <laughs> still, even in France, of course, this is you know, British publication, the Economist magazine, still somewhat dour. And then it said, dot, 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 Probably with good reason. <laughs> all right. Now, having said all that, I get to the, to, the, to the most important point of all. God is transcendent. God is sovereign. And by the way, the idea of sovereignty, of course, implies power. Magna power. Righteous. But, this is Calvin, but even more Bart. And Bart is the one who really hammers this point home. Bart says, you can talk about all the other things you want to in Scripture, because there's all that rich array of different sort of resources for talking about. But ultimately, the most fundamental thing is this. God is, in the witness of Scripture, incarnate in the figure of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the great revelation. That's the revelation above all revelations. That's why people are Christians and not something else. And then Bart says, and that is the thing which ultimately has to be taken into account in every, our discussion of every single topic that is under the rubric of theology. The most fundamental revelation is the following, that God, yes, is all those other things, but God ultimately, fund, first fundamentally, is the kind of creature, the, and the creature, that's the wrong way, the kind of being who is manifested in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is God is capable of love, is in fact a loving being in just the way that Jesus talked about him and just the way in which Jesus conducted his own life. Loving. Uh, the, the creed to which I referred earlier has this wonderful characterization. It says... Yeah, right after that, that business about sovereign love, sovereign love, it says, we are reminded, or words to these effects, we are reminded that Jesus called God Father. And it quotes scripture saying, the language that's used implies, it is Father in the familiar sense, as though I would speak of my own father and the father that presumably I have a loving, to, to, with which I have a loving relationship. And of course, that's, I hope you see, that's so much intention with all this talk about transcendence. But Bart said, and I think it's correct, he says, Calvin emphasized so strongly the transcendence of God and all this other stuff that he tended to want to suggest that there was something about God which could be understood independently of the figure of Jesus. Let me say that again. Calvin was so impressed with all of this stuff 
that he tended in the direction of implying that there were things about God which somehow were beyond what is revealed in the figure of Jesus, and maybe even alien to it, separate from it. By the way, he says that's why Calvin got as far as he did into what he thinks is a mistake, that traditional distinction between those who were elect and those who were not in the double predestinarian ways. That's a kind of speculation beyond the, beyond the, beyond the parameters of the Incarnation. So Barth said, we simply have got to understand that what is revealed about God's nature in the figure of Jesus is fundamental to everything we think about God. And therefore, we have to say the following. Yes, God is all those other things, trans- transcendent, sovereign, da-da-da. But above all, God is remarkably a loving agent and particularly acts with love towards us all the time. Indeed, acts with us towards us with love all the time means the following, that God is forgiving. That's the implication of love. That God wills our salvation in spite of the fact that the righteousness of God might imply something else. Let me say that again. God wills our salvation, reaches out for us, constantly pursuing that project, even though we, frankly, are, could well be thought to be no damn good and deserving of some other outcome. Now, I hope, I hope, if I've been clear at all, I hope you, you're sensing something here. And that is, we've got some ideas which are not easily put together. Are not, as a matter of fact, I would argue there's a kind of tension between them. They're not, I would not say contradiction, but tension. And I think that's revealed in the, in the sort of back and forth that goes on in the history of the Reformed tradition about these matters. I would summarize it this way. If you wanted to draw it all together, you might say the following. What flows out of the Reformed tradition is an image of an absolute monarch who is thoroughly loving. Hmm? An absolute monarch, capable of doing anything, could will our destruction. Keep in mind, by the way, story of Noah's Ark. No. God did will our destruction at one point, but then promised to what? Not. I'm not going to do that again. Or, well, what did he promise? <laughs> Not exactly, exactly. So, so, exactly. So, but God capable of doing anything, but uh, the, the, the sequel would be, in the light of what we now see in Jesus, we have a hard time imagining him doing that, that thing. Now, to your question. What does this imply? about our relationship to other religions. But by the way, that, that, was a, that has been a topic of great importance recently, but for the longest time it wasn't so much, except in the following way. Uh, I want to suggest three stages in this. I've just got a little too simple then and now, but for the longest time, Reformed Christians reacted to, insofar as they've thought about this. By the way, at the time of the Reformation, there was a Muslim threat coming from the east. They worried about it a lot. Thought, possibly, that that Muslim threat coming from the east might ultimately lead to the destruction of Christendom. Talk of that. They worried about that. That threat passed. And there was not much foreign missionary activity for quite a while. Not from Protestants. It's very interesting to note. Not for a while. Uh, It it puzzles people. Why, given their theology, weren't they sort of immediately drawn towards a lot of missionary activity? Probably, my guess is, because they were struggling so much with domestic issues in Western Europe, struggling to get things settled. But eventually, it led to enormous missionary activity, especially in the 19th century. We know that. Powerful missionary activity. Extraordinarily important, I think, in terms of world history. But throughout that entire missionary activity, the premise was the following. Those other religions represent falsehood. Full stop. They represent falsehood, and therefore, our responsibility as Christians is to make the true religion, the knowledge of the true God, available to these people who have our 
continuing to walk in darkness. The only exception to that was the Jews. Jews were always treated as a special case because, well, you know, you can imagine why. There was the assumption, by the way, this was sorted out at the time of the Reformation. The assumption was we owe our, some of our most important resources to the Jews. And the Jews, therefore, to some extent, worship the true God. So there was never any question. But everybody else, Muslims, Hindus, all the... But now, new situation. New situation, which is, I think, dramatically evident in at least in mainline Protestant world, in the following activity. Interfaith worship. You do it here at Westminster. Interfaith worship. Interfaith dialogue. Now, let me just ask you this question and then give you a possible answer, give you a reaction to it. It's a very interesting phenomenon. If people worship together, and the service is organized as an interfaith worship experience, how do we make theological sense of that? Especially if it includes other than Jews. Jews, I've already indicated, are a special case. But let me give you an an illustration. My daughter and her family worship at a Presbyterian church uh, in, uh, in Fairfax County, where one of the things they do now routinely is to have interfaith services involving, especially Muslims, but a whole series of other faith communities. These are well These are very well attended, standing room only. Now, I think if you're trying to make theological sense of that, as opposed to just being nice, just being tolerant, just being practical, you have to ask the following question. It seems to me it only makes sense to do that if you believe to some extent that the people sitting in that room, regardless of the particular faith community of which they are a part, are worshiping the same God. You follow what I'm saying? Are worshiping the same God. Because if it, it, otherwise, it makes no sense at all, except as a practical gesture. Now, let me just, I realize the time is almost gone, but let me just throw out this very interesting question that, that arose. Some, I think it was last year, Wheaton College. Wheaton College which I think is a wonderful institution. By the way, the evangelical colleges, and this is an evangelical institution, some of these evangelical colleges are among the best liberal arts colleges in the country today, and they've worked very hard. They've worked very hard to maintain something which I, I can tes- testify from my long years of experience is very difficult to do, and that is to have a well-run, respected academic institution which at the same time has got a solid grounding in a particular confessional tradition. That's hard to do in part because the academic world is so averse to it. Anyway, at Wheaton College, you have a woman, if I've got the facts correctly, correct, who is herself a professing Christian, professor of religion, I believe, uh, who wears the hajib as a sign of solidarity with Muslims. And she posts on her website something to sort of explain that and defend that, and she says in the course of explaining this that she believes that worship Muslims worship the same God as she does as a Christian. She lost her job. She lost her job because that claim was held to be contrary to the theological self-understanding on which Wheaton College is based. That Muslim belief cannot be recognized as a belief which leads to worship the true God. That was what was said. And she refused, of course, to... Now, I was giving a talk about this in another church not long ago, and a person raised his hand and said, well, what would Calvin say about that? I said, Calvin clearly. Calvin would clearly say Wheaton College was right. I don't think Karl Barth would. I don't think Karl Barth, and if, and, if, and if pressed on it, I think Karl Barth would say the following. Well, it makes sense for us to engage in worship with people of other faiths when we have some reason to believe, looking at their own theology, that they are worshiping a deity comparable to what we understand to be the true God. We would not do that in every case. Certainly, you would not, theologically, it would make no sense at all to just willy-nilly worship together with anybody. Yes? 
as you described Bart, Bart and uh, Bologna, he comes out much, much closer to the Catholics than Calvin. He does, on that issue. On that issue. Absolutely. And by the way, the fact, and I want to say, broadly, mainline Reformed churches today are more Bardian than they are Calvinist. And if you have any doubt about that, read the most recent confessional statement, starting with the Confession of 67, but going on. And by the way, the Confession of 67, I almost reproduced a section of that. The Confession of 67 has got a specific section on this particular topic that I'm discussing, and it's almost letter and verse what I, what I just said. Amy, I'm sorry for going so long, but... Uh, <laughs> so are, are, uh, I'm sure there, there's got to be some questions or maybe even rebuttal here. Let's, yes, here's the comes the rebuttal. If you, if you, um, what you said earlier, you must read the scriptures. Yeah. You must read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, mm -hmm. and then you must study it. Mm -hmm. So then you run into all these different themes, like I will do what I will do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, then you run into Jesus saying, I'm the only way to the Father, right? So, uh, you know, when you when you look at things like what even even the, the peaceful uh, Muslims believe and, and, you know, Buddhists and whoever else, they don't really, they contradict so much of the Well, fair point, but, but fair point. says exactly what, 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 what the turn is. Um, anyway, uh, any, any other comments people want to make on this? Sure. Yeah? It, it seems to me that you can look at things negatively and say they don't believe precisely what we believe and therefore uh, whatever religion we're talking about. Yep. And therefore they're idolaters. Or you can look on the positive side and say you know we have some common beliefs. You know, clearly we're both searching you know, for something that, that that is, you know, that commonality. And I think that really divides how people are looking at these issues. Well, absolutely. Boy, there was a lot written on that on both sides, and it struck me that you know, there was a cleaver that just... Yeah. Well, I think that's well taken, but let me add this observation triggered by your comment. I think it makes a big difference whether we're talking about a genuinely monotheistic religion, because not all are. And I think all of these figures that I've been relying on would say the turn toward monotheism, which is primarily an achievement <laughs> of Israel initially, was the, the common practice was not monotheism. The turn toward monotheism is a crucial turning point. Now, Christianity builds on that. Um, that's why I say I think it's very important not to just say all faiths uh, are equal in our eyes, or anything, even to imply that, because it's not true. It shouldn't be true. It should be that as we look at the various uh, expressions of uh, of religious sensibilities, we see that some are what? Akin to what we believe to be the truth. That's the thing. I also believe, I think you have to hold on to some possibility, uh, have to hold on to the idea that there is such a thing as false religion. At least from our theological point of view. 
There are things which people are going to say about the deity, believe about the deity, which are just incompatible with our theological understanding. We can just burn them at the stake. Well, let let me distinguish. But but your comment, I know it's facetious, but let me make, make this observation. I think we have to distinguish as a matter of principle what we think about the quality, the character of somebody else's beliefs from what we do in dealing with them. Those are two separate questions. It seems to me you can easily say it's inappropriate for us to do all kinds of destructive things toward somebody else's uh, religion and them personally and still say, I find what they stand for from my view of things as a Christian to be mistaken. And I think the danger, part of the danger in our situation is to fall into a kind of mindless syncretism where it's just all the same. Because it's not. See you next time.